You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon. Listeners will know that LawPod UK often caters for those already in practice, but today we're going to talk about how to get pupillage to assist those considering a career path as a barrister. I'm thrilled to have here with me Sharam Sharghi and Joe Moore, and between the three of us we have a range of different experiences in how we approach becoming a barrister and how we ended up at One Crown Office Row, so we hope that that will be of some use to those listening. So to begin, Sharam, how important is doing your homework in advance? I think, Emma, it's the single most important aspect of getting pupillage. And I speak from experience because when I did my undergraduate degree at Sussex, I thought it would be a good idea to carry on and do a master's. So I went up to Cambridge to do a master's, but in commercial law. And I loved every aspect of the theory of studying commercial law and got a pupillage in a commercial set within a few months it became clear that they weren't suited to me and I wasn't suited to them, but I was sort of stuck there for a period of 12 months. It was only really when I started in a common law set, which I sort of spent 20 years at before joining One Grand Office Row, that I really got to understand what the different aspects of law is in, in practice. And so my strongest piece of advice is for any aspiring barrister to go to these pupillage fairs that the Bar Council runs, go to the pupillage talks that the various inns of court have, and also the chambers are now providing more regularly, and really get to understand what it is when a set says that they have a predominance in human rights, in clinical negligence work, and in employment and and the like. Because as an aspiring barrister, what you want to know is not just what the successful silks at the top end are doing work-wise, but also, and more importantly, what the juniors will be doing, what you will be doing if you are taken on. And so that, for me, is the absolute bedrock and where every aspiring barrister should be starting to gain the experience before they can even begin to fill out the answers on the application forms. I couldn't agree more and particularly about this issue of internet research and researching the particular chambers that you might be considering applying to. There's obviously always going to be a difference between how a particular set advertises its services, what it tells others it predominantly does and what it actually does. And I think working out what that set's bread and butter is should be a really strong consideration when deciding whether or not to apply to it. And as exactly as you say, looking at this, the kinds of work that those from kind of 10 years call down are doing is a strong indication of what you will then be doing when you, when you start out. So I definitely agree with all that internet research, but take some of the chambers marketing with a pinch of salt. The other two things I would recommend is pupillage and how to get it, which I don't think existed in my time, as, as they say, but a colleague mentioned it to me and I had a look last night and it's a really excellent, comprehensive explanation of every stage of the process. And then when I was applying, I read a book by Georgina Wolf called The Path to Pupillage. And I think that book's a little bit older now, so some of it might be a little bit more out of date, but I think it, it was a terrific read and I'd highly recommend it to those considering applying. 
Joe, do you have any advice to those considering going down this path about how they can get their ducks lined up in a row before they even sign up to the pupillage portal? Yeah, I think a really good way to get experience about what chambers actually do that will tell you where you need to apply and also how to apply there in a successful way, hopefully, is by way of mini pupillages. Now, it's not as easy as going online to read chambers profiles, of course, but if you do do a few mini pupillages and we don't expect people to have tons and tons, it's a great way to learn about what people do day to day in chambers. And you have to remember there are two way streets. So you're learning about chambers and making good impression, but they should be making good impression on you as well. And you judge that way whether you want to apply there. So it's a bit of a, a two way street, I think, both when you're there and when you're learning about what people do, and also when you're doing your applications. So when you're writing up your applications, hopefully having done many pupillages at some of the places you're interested in applying, you can use your experience there to set out why you belong there. And I mean, in terms of practice areas and your areas of interest, but also why you want to be there, why it would be a good place for you to be and why you'd enjoy being there. And I think that that real kind of lifetime experience, even if it's only a few days, a sort of snapshot of people at different levels of call and doing slightly different practices within your chambers is something very important when you're doing your applications that you can put into into place and hopefully um, communicate what you've learned while you're there. I completely agree. I remember the mini pupillage I spent at One Crown Officer and one of the things that struck me was how nearly everybody's door was always open and everyone you know, could be seen wandering in and out of each other's rooms, asking questions or having a chat. And I think understanding that a particular set is somewhere that you might actually want to work also increases your chances, I think, of success because I'm convinced having you know, sat on many interview panels that when an applicant is enthusiastic about a set and it's genuine, that really comes across in interview. And so I think those experiences are very helpful so that you can gauge, you know, is my sense of humour going to tank at this particular set compared with another? But when applicants do then look, start looking at the portal and it's intimidating and I have, I don't want to say nightmares, but certainly strong memories of uh, that application process being the bane of my life um, at a particular point in time. One of the questions that lots of people ask is, well, when should I apply to become a barrister? You know, what stage should I do that? Should I uh, apply while I'm in university? Should I wait until I've done a master's? Should I consider it once I've racked up, you know, experience working elsewhere? Um, Joe, do you have any advice on when applicants should think about first applying via the portal? It's difficult to say really because you should apply when you're ready and for some people they will be ready to apply for pupillage while they're still in their third year of a law degree for example which to me became, becoming a barrister in my sort of mid to late 20s seems extremely young and very early but but then when I meet people who've done that I, you know I'm not struck by that at all obviously they were ready to do it and that's why they were successful. Um, in practical terms, you tend to apply, I think the portal is actually called the gateway now, although that I might be getting that the wrong, wrong way around because I always call the BPTC that and apparently that's changed its name too, even though I feel like it was very recent and I am still having those nightmares about filling in the forms, Emma. Um, I think you apply through the gateway in the January for pupillages that start the following year. So you have quite a lot of time. So you have to think, what will I be doing in that time? Will I be ready by the time I'm starting? Even if I don't feel quite like I'm there now, which I think nobody really does. Obviously, if you feel it's too early, you can wait. If you become a barrister, you should be a barrister for the rest of your life, if you enjoy it, unless you become a judge or you do something different. But it is a job for life if you get it and if you want it to be. 
And I don't think that waiting an extra year and developing some relevant experience, if you really feel like you're not ready to apply. For example, for me, I applied when I was only one term into the GDL, the um, law conversion course. So I'd only really done um, half a year of law, which seems crazy to say I'm going to dedicate my life to being a lawyer and, and I've studied three modules of law. But as I said at the time, I was a bit older and I had had a job. I could imagine feeling quite overwhelmed with the idea of, of throwing yourself into you know potentially quite legally complex interviews and filling out forms about cases that you thought were decided wrong when you've only been studying law for, for four months. So I think each person will know when they're ready. And I think a really good way to know if you are ready is to start doing that research, to looking into what chambers do and to even just going to court and seeing what barristers do and thinking, can I see myself doing this in 18 months? Or you know, do I really want to have a think about it and get a bit more experience before I do so? And as I understand it, you can now apply to up to 20 sets Bye. on this portal come gateway. Whereas I think what, certainly when I applied, it was only 12. And that in some ways makes it easier because you've got you know, there's more options available to you. But actually, I, one of the things I really struggled with was simply finding enough sets that I actually wanted to work out one day. And so, Sharam, do you have any advice to those who are thinking about, like, how do I pinpoint those chambers that I'd ultimately want to interview at and hopefully succeed at and get offered tenancy at? I think it's at this point that you've got to be quite strategic. So if you've done your research with the chambers, mini pupillage, and the various handbooks and the pupillage fairs, you will probably and you should only have no more than a handful of chambers that are your absolute, what I'm going to call grade A chambers. And the strategy is to have the chambers that you're absolutely set on wanting to go to and be offered pupillage by, but to also be smart enough to realize that if you're not lucky enough, fortunate enough to get pupillage there, then where else could you apply to? Which is why one of the things, and going back to Joe's point, I would absolutely recommend any aspiring barrister is to do mini pupillages, not just in the areas and the chambers that you're interested in, but also to look slightly wider. So for example, if you are always interested in doing employment law, don't just look at an employment predominant set, but look at other common law sets that might do some employment, but some other areas. So just broaden your horizons because 20 sets is a lot to be concentrating on, be aware of all the recent cases and who does what where. And bear in mind, they, the candidates, are going to be studying. They're going to be working. They'll have other massive commitments outside of the application process. And I think it's too easy to become overwhelmed by the fact that the form has to be filled in and then 20 almost separate, albeit combined applications have to be made because each set will maybe ask their own individual questions as I know we do. So I think the key to choosing the chambers to apply to is be strategic, have your core, and then outside of those chambers, have others that you would be interested in. And it's good interview practice. If you get interviews, uh, a number of different sets, it's really good live practice. So you're not ever going to lose. One of the questions I will always remember being asked at the seminar that we ran for pupillage applicants a couple of years ago was how many hours should I spend on the pupillage portal? And I remember thinking, gosh, that's I suppose it is sort of a sensible question, but there's just no way, in my view anyway, that you could give a hard answer because you just you have to be satisfied that all of your answers 
are the best they could possibly be. And so it just takes as long as it takes. I highly recommend not doing what I did and pulling an all-nighter before the deadline. But I imagine I will not be the last person to do that. But in terms of tips either of you might have about answering the questions on on the portal, how to avoid common pitfalls, what would you say, Joe, to someone setting out, you know, question one on their first application, why do you want to be a barrister? Well, I think you have to be honest rather than try to give the answer that people you think people want to hear. So if you say you want to be a barrister because you know, you want to be exactly like someone at that chambers or you're just really interested in justice. And the truth is you love coming up with clever arguments and you're a bit of a show off. I think it's better to go with the truth and phrase it in an attractive a way as possible than than saying probably what quite a lot of people will say. And I think that as Sharam said, there's 20 applications you have to fill in. You might want to think about slightly changing even the what seem like generic answers for each set. I know that that takes like a long time. But if you are able to do that by way of the specific questions that you're asked to answer, you want to make your form targeted towards the places that you want to be, because each of them will have their own sort of personality. Each of them will have their own focuses and you'll know the people there are all a bit different. So I think that it's important to take into account the audience that's going to read it, but also stay true to what's true and what's yourself. And another thing I'd mention, and it comes a bit later in the stage, is before you have your interview, make sure you reread the application for the correct set that you're about to have your interview for, if you're lucky enough to have an interview, because they're bound to ask you questions. Well, you said here that you're really interested in defending the rights of people wrongly accused of something, but you're applying to us a prosecution set. You know, they might catch you out in that way, or you might be able to say, well, here's why I think that that's important and, and it applies to your set. So you really need to remind yourself of those answers and also try to avoid giving an answer that's possibly not quite attuned to the place you're applying as well. Great advice. Shiram, how about you? The aim of the application is to get you through the SIFT process. At interview, it's all up for grabs, everyone is equal. And so what a candidate's got to think about is how do I want to present myself on paper, going back to Joe's point. And as someone who's looked at thousands and thousands of applications in the past, both here at one Crown Office and, and uh, in my last set, when you're faced with having to review and mark a hundred applications each person, the one thing that you want to stand out is why do they want to come to us as a set? So you don't read every single part of the application form. You read the key parts that tell you why that person is interested in you. And the second is are their answers generic, cut and paste, the type of answers that blogs provide and all these useful tools online? Or is it the individual that is really speaking to you? And I think the important thing for me is I want someone to stand out on paper compared to all the other candidates. And then that's really being true to themselves. But avoiding spelling mistakes is key. And also the absolute no-no is to write a generic answer across the board because you're interested, let's say, in human rights and you answer the human rights question in exactly the same way. Because as someone who's reading it for the very first time, not the candidate who's read it a hundred times before setting it off, there's that moment where you step back and think, are they talking about us? Because I didn't know we did this area of law. I didn't know that this is what we majored in. So just, I think, keep it simple. It's not a complicated process. Tell us about you and tell us about why you want to come to 
us. The rest of it we'll pick up at interview, and I know that's something we're going to come on to. I think um, it's important to say as well, when we say we want people to stand out, it's not that you have to have been, you know, the top in your year at Harvard or you have to have a UN diploma in whatever. Obviously, people like that will stand out, but you can stand out by by expressing yourself in an interesting way and by making your application easy to read by using bullet points and using subheadings instead of long paragraphs or by you know telling an interesting story about a way in which your weekend job as a waitress has taught you something that you'd apply when you were doing court advocacy. It doesn't have to be standing out by this incredible level of academic and, and professional achievement that when I read people's applications now, I shudder to imagine myself up against them if I were doing the pupillage process at the moment. Standing out can be as simple as an application that's a bit of a pleasure to read because it's, it's written with the reader in mind. I, I totally agree. And sta- I think standing out works two ways. There's You want to stand out for the right reasons, but you, may, you want to make sure that your application doesn't stand out for the wrong reasons. And one of the things we find every year is that some people just fail to get the basics right. And some of those pitfalls include naming the wrong set in your answer. So making it patently obvious to whoever is reading your application, probably having given up a Saturday afternoon to do that. And I mean, as, as, we are, as I've definitely found in the past, I'm really keen on co- coming to Devereux Chambers. I think it's, it's got a lot to offer. I think, well, that's not us. So be ve- be very careful about that. Misspelling the set name. I mean, that's it's a real bugbear. It doesn't make great impression. As Sharam said, make sure that it doesn't appear to anyone that you've copy pasted your answer from a sort of generic application. And I think pith and concision never go amiss. There's a word count on each of the answers and you should obviously use as much space as you need to to give a full answer, but you also don't need to treat it as I need to max out this word count. I need to make sure that every single word is um, made up in this box because that's also obvious to the reader too. And it's often short, pithy, well-constructed answers that are the ones that I'll ultimately wave through. Can I add just one more point? Because I think it's worth mentioning. Nobody expects a complete barrister to come across on the form. No one expects them to answer every question in the most beautiful way that we have never come across before. It's such an individual assessment process that I think candidates have got to just appreciate that it's just focusing on who they are. They're only competing against themselves in reality rather than lots of unknown candidates because they'll never know what answers others have given. That's a great point. So moving then on to the interview process, which certainly from my perspective was always the most daunting of the various hurdles you have to overcome. I think one of the things I would say to those considering going down this path is not to underestimate how much they can work on and improve their interview skills. I think some people, and I was amongst this cohort, convince themselves that it's it's sort of an innate ability. You're either good in interview or you're not good in interview and you can't change that. I can't impress on people more how incorrect that approach to interviews is. And one of the ways that it's always apparent to me that that is the, the case is that people improve so much by the time they are doing their second round interview because they've typically had a number of other interviews in the interim. So anyone who's gone through this process will know that you get offered first round interviews and second round interviews, and they all tend to land roughly in around the same couple of weeks. 
So that by, for example, week three, in your very last interview, you're likely to be putting forward a much more polished, confident version of your answers than the very first time you do that. So I do think practice is so important. And one of the ways that you can do that is by checking whether you're in offers, mock interviews and signing up to those if they're offered. They should be. I'm pretty sure they still are offered by Mayan anyway, Middle Temple. And I imagine others do do those as well. But it's so helpful to make all of the clangers and all of your mistakes in front of someone who ultimately doesn't matter, but who is kind enough to point out what you got right and what you got wrong in an interview. So I'd highly recommend that. And failing that, asking a friend or colleague, ideally somebody who you're not so comfortable with, that it'll be easy, but someone who puts you on edge a little bit and asking them to run through some of the basic questions from your portal application is really helpful practice because sometimes you just need to practice saying the sentences out loud in a way that sounds convincing. Joe and Sharon, what are your tips for preparing for interview? Maybe Joe first. What what should applicants expect at interview? It does depend on the set. So as far as I understand it and from my experience as well, some sets just do one interview. Some do, as you described, I think most Emma, one sort of with a smaller panel normally and then a second one with more people in chambers, which, which leads to the final decision. And even some have a mini pupillage in the middle of those two, which is assessed as well which is shouldn't be treated like an interview, but in some respects is part of the assessment. It does generally tend to be a panel of barristers, normally should be of different levels of call. Some of them you might remember if you've done a mini before, or at least you should have seen them on the website. A few chambers send you something to do in advance. So I, in my experience, and certainly from when I was applying and, and talking to friends, a lot of the criminal chambers would send a sort of bail application or some piece of advocacy for you to prepare in advance. Some will send more of a sort of formal assessment, a legal assessment. Other chambers ask you to come in, say, an hour, half an hour before the interview and read a question. And then either you'll answer the question or you'll answer questions on the same topic while you're in there. And some of them you just turn up and answer questions. I think in common with all of them, you'll be asked why you want to apply to that chambers, what you see your career in law looking like, and questions about your experience and why it would make you a good barrister. So while they're all kind of up for grabs in terms of you have to just turn up and see what happens, you should get some indication in advance. You should be able to ask people if you are there for a mini as well. And you can be sure that those topics that always come up will come up. And I think you're completely right, Emma, even just saying them out loud, even if you're like me, and I do this before court as well, just rehearsing some of your arguments while you're wandering around tidying up the house or doing whatever, just by saying it out loud, you realise, oh, actually, that's something I'm not so confident on and I need to find a better way of sort of phrasing that or oh, if they ask me about that, I'm going to trip up. I need to practice that a few times. You know you're going to get asked about some of the stuff on your form. You know you're going to get asked about the set. Why not run through it a few times? And as I said before, reread your application form as well. Yeah. Insofar as the tips I have, it's... Just walk in there as if you have absolutely nothing to lose, as if it's just a chat and there is a high probability that they're going to say no. And the reason for that is not that they are going to say no, but it's because it just relaxes you. If you say to yourself before the interview, before you get to chambers, before you walk into that room, oh, I can't, I can't mess up. I've, I've got to get this absolutely spot on because if I don't answer it in this way, they're not going to give it to me. I don't think that's how we, on the other side of the interview panel, think about it. There are three key areas we look for. One is to 
just ask some questions, usually generic questions about the application form. And that's just to make sure that what they've put is really what they want and who they are. Then the other area, which is equally as important, is the ability to think on your feet and the ability to just spontaneously deal with a situation that you've not come across before. And that could be either by way of a question you're given before you walk in, a few days before, written or otherwise. And that's, again, not to get the best answer possible, but that's just seeing how they're able to cope under pressure. And the third and probably equally as important issue that we're going to be wanting to test is what do you do to switch off? We don't work with robots. We want to know you as a person. We want to know your interests. Are you a musician? Do you dance? Do you play any sports? Do you have any other interests outside? Because if you're going to become one of our colleagues, we want to be able to have a social life as well as a professional life. And so when preparing for an interview, just make sure you've got those three key broad areas covered and that you can demonstrate it. There's so many occasions when I've interviewed candidates and they look genuinely shocked when we ask them what they do when they're not dealing with legal issues and, and the law and applications and studying. And once they open up, you just see this wonderful individual blossoming in front of you and think, wow, that's the real you. Um, so I think that's important to place some reliance on as well in an interview. Just in terms of the thinking on your feet, I think that's something that you need to anticipate. And if you're not good at that, put yourself in situations where you can practice being uncomfortable and acting on your feet. Because certainly some of the interviews I went to, there would have been over a dozen barristers behind the table at some of my interviews. And you just have questions firing at you, suggesting that what you've just said is ridiculous. And you have to be able to stay cool, calm and collected in those situations because it's the people who can manage and handle that pressure that are most likely to handle it in court. And that's really what we're looking for. So expect your feathers to be ruffled. Don't worry that it's it means the interview is going badly mid-interview. Often it's the people we test more are the ones that we're really interested in because they're showing real promise in an interview. And so we want to throw them a few curveballs and see how they handle that. Just finally, and I think somewhat inevitably, we'll need to touch upon dealing with rejection, which it, there's a degree of inevitability about it. I, I know very few people who have made it to their set where they are today without facing some level of rejection on their career path to date. I think it's it's rubbish, obviously, and it can be very confidence sapping, but it's something that you have to overcome if you're really serious about this process, because unless you are amongst the very small number of people who sail through university pupillage interviews and tenancy, this is something you're going to have to deal with. So starting to think in advance about sort of resilience, I think is a really good idea. Joe, do you have any hot tips on dealing with what is, I have to say, a regular recurrence at the bar because some days just, I mean, things do not go your way in court. Your, your witness implodes on the stand or, you know, new medical evidence totally undermines your key causation argument in a claim. I mean, it's just, this is life. <laughs> It's certainly good practice. I think that when you're so set on something as you are when you're a barrister kind of wannabe and you're going through that process, it feels like the most important thing in the world when you get any rejection. And particularly if you, for example, don't get, you're not successful in any of your interviews or get very few or no interviews, it can feel like I'm just completely not cut out for this. And obviously you do need to evaluate whether you're applying for the right places, whether it's the right time. But I think to a certain extent, you need to take a step back and say, hopefully I'll land up where I need to be. For me, I mean, I did get 
pupillage, but then I didn't get tenancy at the place I applied and I ended up doing a third six. And of course, at the time, it feels very terrible and that everything you have planned has changed. But I think from my experience or from pretty much everyone I know who's gone through similar, we all feel like we ended up where we're meant to be. The decision was made for the right reason on both ends. And actually, you're not there because you're meant to be somewhere else. Of course, I'm at One Crown Office Row now, having applied for pupillage and not even got an interview there. So there is a level of serendipity, uh, one rejection leading to another, leading to me ending up where I am now. So sometimes the careers that we have can take a circuitous route, just like, as you say, in, in cases, Emma, things go wrong. And hopefully you end up with the right result. And it does make you a better barrister, a better applicant along the way, learning to deal with those things. But it's not to minimize. It feels awful at the time. And having gone through that very grueling 20 or hopefully slightly fewer application process to end up with nothing, it, it's hard. You know, you need to take a bit of a bit of time for yourself and, and do something you enjoy, which presumably isn't filling in forms. I would echo that completely because the problem really is about using the word rejection because you feel like a reject if you don't get it. And it's not about that it's in terms of pupillage and it's not how candidates should look at pupillage because all it really means if you don't get an offer is not here and not now. No, it's not never. And two examples I can give you is in my last set we interviewed a candidate three times. He applied to us on three occasions, got through to interview in all three years. And we said no the first year because we had other candidates who we had assessed as being slightly stronger. And sometimes it is the minutest of detail that tells the difference between one fantastic candidate and another. So it doesn't mean you're not good enough. Second year, we said no for similar reasons. Third year, we said yes, he's now one of the most successful juniors we had in my last set. And the second example is a recently appointed High Court judge who had five rejections after doing his first six. He could not find a place anywhere at the bar to do any area of law, I think he, he would have admitted to. And he finally did manage to find a set. He moved from that set to another. That set broke down because they dissipated, so he moved to his penultimate set. And he's now a high court judge. So it does happen. It can happen. The one problem for most candidates is they tend to give up after round one. They think they're not good enough and they, they're not cut out for the bar. I think that's the biggest misconception. They are good enough, but they just need to try again next time around. I think in terms of uh, trying the next time around, it is important where possible to seek feedback as well, because you could be doing something wrong, not know what you're doing wrong, and it can actually be quite easily remediable. It could be something like you haven't got any advocacy experience and that's particularly important to our set and therefore difficult to find, but you can try and do some free representation work or something. Or it could be as simple as having given a bit of a dud answer to one of the questions that you can just practice uh, and next year make sure you don't make that mistake again. So feedback is is one of those things where you really don't know what, what your strengths or weaknesses are sometimes until someone tells you. And I think lots of barristers are very willing to give that sort of feedback, even if they don't advertise it. There really is no harm in asking very politely for feedback after an interview that hasn't gone well. Yeah. And I have to say, in terms of interviews that haven't gone well, you are in a very large club. I doubt there is any barrister at the bar who doesn't 
crawl into their own soul thinking about some of the interviews they've had. And I remember walking, very clearly walking across Waterloo Bridge after one second round interview thinking, well, that's it. I'm just going to have to completely alter my haircut and hair colour because I can never be recognised by that set ever again. So I'm just going to have to change who I am. I have to go into some sort of self-enforced witness protection. This stuff still, you know, 10 years later, keeps me up at night, which is as the problem is you walk around Temple and you walk past these uh, doorways that you remember coming out of and sort of shudder and you have to do every day at work. So all, all I'd say to those applying this year is it is rubbish, but uh, you're in a big club of other people who have been there and know what it's like. And I think trying to stick together with others who are going through the process can be helpful as well because the support of others who understand what you're actually going through is helpful. One thing I would say, I did not find it helpful to check the Chambers student online thread. And I know that one has started every year giving so-called tips about different interviews. I think that way lies madness. Obviously, it's to each their their own preference. But I think you also have to try and stay blinkered with a focus on your best effort and your best preparation and try and forget about what everyone else that you're against is doing themselves. Um, any final tips from both of you? Just start early and know what it is you want to do in terms of answering the questions and the chambers you're interested in. And don't get despondent if you don't succeed at the first time. Yeah, I'd say reread your application as, as much as possible with fresh eyes, so having slept on it. And um, yes, just very good luck. Uh, and then from me, perhaps a little bit more typically, if you're interested in the areas that One Crown Office Row practices in, please apply to us. We're a lovely place to work. <laughs> and um, we, uh, we love getting applicants who are keen in what we do and interested to get involved. So check out our website. We'll link it in the blurb accompanying this podcast, along with some of the resources that we've mentioned in this episode. But from all of us, good luck to everyone applying this year. Uh, we wish you all the very best. And thanks to Sharam and Joe. Thanks. Thanks, Evan. LawPod UK is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon and produced by One Crown Office Row.